Bobby Steggert was a successful Broadway actor nominated for a Tony. Gave it all up to become a therapist. He's our guest on Personally Speaking. To personally speaking, I'm your host, Monsignor Jamlasanti, and Tony-nominated actor Bobby Steggert joins me now. Bobby has extensive credits on and off-Broadway, including Ragtime, Big Fish, Yank, and Mothers and Sons. In 2018, Bobby surprised the theater community by announcing he had switched careers and was in the middle of getting a degree in social work from Columbia University. Since July of 2019, Bobby has been serving as a psychotherapist in private practice and a staff therapist in the Institute of Human Identity Therapy Center. Three quarters of his clients, Bobby says, are actors and singers, dancers, directors, writers, or designers. Bobby spent nearly 20 years building his acting career and then decided to leave that career behind with a goal to make a difference in people's lives. He's here with us today to talk about making that decision and how his experience as an actor gives him a unique perspective and understanding about the specific mental health needs of theater artists, particularly during the pandemic and in these uncertain times. I'm very pleased to welcome back to Personally Speaking, Bobby Stigert. Bobby, first things first, and, and uh, you may know her. She's an old friend of ours, uh, Margaret Colan, the, the actress mostly of uh, stage, but some TV work as well. And Independence Day, but I asked her once because she's an old buddy, um, why why acting? And she said uh, I couldn't do anything else. And she didn't mean she didn't have the talent to do something else, but this had to be her vocation. Just felt this was what uh, she was called on to be by her life. When you were in the arts and and acting, did you feel when you first entered into it, this is the only thing I can and will do? Absolutely, yeah. In the first few decades of my life, it was, it was an absolute. Um, and I think for me, I, you know, I grew up gay, lonely, afraid, mm. and certainly um, scared to express myself at my fullest capacity. So, so acting became for me the conduit through which I got to, um, you know, embrace emotionality, um, process feelings and ideas and do it uh, to the, you know, approval of others. So it was a very safe space for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you may make a redirect, very important redirect in your life a few years ago by going back to school and, and getting your degree. Here's my question. In the 41 years that I've been doing counseling in a parish level, um, I've come to realize that there is nothing, nothing more important than inability to listen in the role that you're in, that I'm sometimes in. How did you find yourself listening before you chose to get into therapy and be a therapist? Were you always a, an effective listener? Were you listen not just obviously with the hear, ears, but with the heart and the mind and the soul? Um, have you been your whole life known by the people who know you well as someone who truly hears people? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, again, it all goes back to being gay for me. It, it's such a... Um, a terribly hard thing to grow up feeling alone when you're young, but it gives you so many gifts. And I think one of the gifts it gave me was a gift of observation, um, mm. of feeling outside of the norm and um, being very keenly aware of the environment and of the people around me, 
um, not only as a survival technique, but also a as a way to try to find um, like-minded people, safe spaces, safe others. Um, and so, yeah, I've always uh, prided myself on being a good listener on stage, a good listener in life, and a good friend. Okay. And related to that, uh, now I've just been doing it for a long time, so maybe it's an occupational hazard, but uh, there are times when the person is telling me their problems, and, and I've kind of heard a lot of it before in other situations, mm -hmm. and I have to uh, focus on not going into automatic pilot. Um, I know you're new at this in terms of therapy, just several years, but do you find some time a tripwire, tripwire in listening to people that causes you to say, I know before they go too much further, what they're saying, where they're going, and what my suggested response should be. <laughs> yeah, and I would add to that, sometimes it's easy to um, project your story onto there. Yeah. You know, assume that if you understand something uh, through your own experience that it mirrors or somehow um, is similar or identical to theirs. So yeah, there's a lot of conscious backpedaling that I have to do to really uh, consciously stay open to the uniqueness of someone else's experience. Yeah. When, uh, when there have been times in therapy, uh, pastoral counseling, where, to be honest with you, I haven't said much, haven't been very directive at all, just listened for mm -hmm. 45 minutes to an hour, and had the, the people say at the end of the thing, you know, uh, hey, Father, I want to thank you so much. You've helped me more than you know. And nothing was, was suggested to them. It was simply a case of a hunger to be heard, and, and they were happy somebody was listening. Um, have you had that experience, Bobby? 100%. And, and, you know, my best teachers in the training I had for becoming a therapist would remind me of that, that, that the, the central act of therapy is to hold space and to create mm. safe and conscious space with someone else. You know, we all have this deep need to be heard, understood, um, held, um, you know, both physically, but of course, emotionally. And, um, and sometimes that's enough. Sometimes people just need to be heard. Yeah. Bobby Seger's our guest. Bobby, um, I'm sure that you're evolving in the style of your therapy, but uh, there are people I've known who are wonderful therapists who are quite active in directing the person. There are others who are very passive and just taking it all in and maybe making a suggestion now and then, but not a lot. Do you find yourself inclined one way or the other? Yeah, and I guess uh, the human thing about it is that it's a constant negotiation. You know, I am mm. an actor and I'm, I'm very used to self-expression, so I kind of have to cap for myself, um, the desire to speak out. Um, I have to do a lot more conscious listening and a lot less conscious speaking. Um, uh, but I, I'm finding a balance between uh, listening and knowing that trust in your clients can help them have trust in themselves. Yeah. Um, and one of the best ways you can trust someone is to let them lead their own way to either an interpretation or to a clarity of their experience. But sometimes we can't see ourselves uh, clearly. Sometimes we need a trusted other to say, listen, this is what's happening here. This is what's going on. This is the pattern I see. And um, I think as I get more experience, I'm getting better at knowing when those moments are, when people need to hear a truth that they can't um, maybe at that time envision for themselves. Okay. Uh, this is more my parents' generation than now, I think, but you'll know better than I. Back then, when there were family problems or individual problems, very often the response was, if we can't solve it within the family, it can't be solved by going to someone who's a stranger. Um, I would <laughs> hope that people have moved past that. But do you still run into that at all? 
I think that's must, it must be a generational thing because I think um, I think that that stigma has very much shifted. Um, uh. And honestly, so many of the the burdens that we carry we we carry because of those lessons that, <laughs> for better or worse, our parents taught us. Um, yeah. And and I work with so many queer people who had to do very important work to differentiate from the family unit. It was mm-hmm. essential that they create an I identical, not identical, and an individual value system that was separate from the value system that was taught them. Um, so I, I strongly disagree with that, with that old notion that um, it should be figured out within the family unit. You know, Bobby Segus, our guest, you've talked so often in many interviews about uh, the power, the importance of coming to grips with a gay identity and both as a blessing and as a burden. I mentioned that because, uh, interestingly enough, Pope Francis this week came out and said, you know, never, ever parents condemn your gay children, which was a step in the right direction for the church, to be sure. But I was thinking of our interview with Andy Mientis, where I said, you know, when you were dealing with your parents, uh, was there acceptance? And he said, well, there was acceptance, but I don't think that's in any way, shape or form enough. He said, parents aren't called on to accept their children. They're called on to embrace their children. Uh, how do you, as a guy who's been through the experience of grappling with the gay identity, when you're dealing with families, help people to move, not just to tolerance, but way beyond tolerance, way beyond acceptance to an embrace of those children? Yeah, I, I try to emphasize the gift and the opportunity in um, an experience in life that helps you to think outside of the norm or outside of the accepted box. Um, we, as humans, follow so many prescribed rules. Mm. And in a lot of ways, those rules keep us organized as a species. But in a lot of ways, those rules are arbitrary. They're harmful and uh, they're constricting. And so, um, you know, I try to help parents understand that their child being different in this way is an enormous opportunity for them to learn about the world Mm -hmm. and for them to learn about different ways of being. The the, the thing that I think queer people can teach their straight brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers the most about is how adherence to gender roles can be very damaging to uh, straight people. queer people have the gift of getting to play outside of that box. And I think that in a lot of ways, straight people have that same opportunity if they're willing to take it. Okay. Bobby, uh, I know the folks either listening to this on Sirius XM or watching it, um, especially if they're uh, mainstream Catholic folks and a lot of folks like that uh, listen to a show like this, they would be jarred by your use of the word queer. They're perfectly comfortable calling Mm -hmm. people gay, but they, they don't know why because they grew up in a world where calling someone a queer was a derogative thing. Why do you use that word instead of gay? Well, it's more of an umbrella term and it's a term that's used in academia Mm -hmm. to really um, identify all the many different variables within that category. So um, it's a reclaiming of the word too. You're right, it used to be something that was very derogatory, but um, the community has reclaimed it as a way to, um, to give it power and to give it dignity. And, and under that umbrella term, you could be gay, you could be trans, you could be bisexual, you could be asexual, uh, you could be non-binary. There are so many different both gender and sexual identities that fall under that, that category. Okay. I, I have a, not a lot, but some parents who come to me who are frankly uh, mystified by and trying to understand the whole trans movement. Um, did you come into therapy with a, a wide acceptance of the trans community? Did it take you any time to get comfortable with the idea? I had a theoretical 
understanding and acceptance. Um, because it's just my philosophy that um, it is never my place to pass any judgment on anyone's identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's taken close, intimate work with trans clients that has um, given me a better, more nuanced and more personal understanding of their experience. Um, okay. And through that work, um, you know, I have a whole new appreciation for their experience. You know, I'm thinking of one couple in particular who came in to see me who uh, had a 15 or 16 year old son who wanted to transition. And and they said to me, you know, we listen to your homilies in church. We you're talking about acceptance and loving your children always and forever, no matter what. Uh, and we love that idea. And because of that, we're going to come up with the money sooner than later for the transition transition to begin. Now, I just said to them, I'm not recommending that you uh, start getting into surgery for a 15 or 16 year old. I don't know what the right time or place is for that transition. But Bobby, as someone in therapy, what would you say to parents who say, well, we want to be supportive. So if our child decides at 16 that the transition should begin then, even though I think it might be better at 21 or 22, how does one discern? You know, I'm, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in adolescent um, trans experience. And so I, I don't want to speak too specifically on it. But I okay. think the number one thing that I can speak confidently about is affirming the identity. That okay. no, no matter what decisions are made around medical transition, the most important thing a parent can do is to infirm that child's gender identity as valid, as legitimate, and as something to be taken very seriously. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you do for a living now. And uh, I'm, I'm paralleling this in some way with what we do as priests. Um, People share with you some of their most incredibly important personal information. They are vulnerable with you. And uh, a lot of them are are certainly going through a lonely experience of carrying their burdens without the help and support of others. It would be easy, I've seen it happen myself, for people to project onto you as not a therapist, but as as a friend and Mm -hmm. uh, as someone they feel a great intimacy with. But you've got to set, I think all of us do, certain perimeters that people understand this is a professional relationship and you're not going to necessarily be their best buddy. How do you set limits? It's a good question. And it's something you learn over time. Um, you know, you have to be careful about not sharing too many personal things about your life. And that, that's actually tricky in my experience because my clients have a lot of access to my previous work. Right. Um, and, you know, there have been times with access to that work where they might have um, more of a sense of closeness than actually exists because they see me in past environments where um, I'm not in the position of a therapist. Um, but, you know, tied into keeping boundaries is making it very clear that the work is theirs mm-hmm. and that my main function in that work is to guide them towards making, you know, um, healthy, and consider decisions on their own path. Um, so I, I try to set myself up as an advocate, as a support system. Um, and you know, if there are ever moments that come up where there is a confusion about those boundaries, the best thing to do is just to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, well, related to that, um, most therapists, whether it's 45 minutes or an hour, uh, do have time limits on the amount of time they're going to spend with a client. I mentioned that because I'm wondering how easy or difficult is it for Bobby Steckert as therapist, especially if you're moving into something that's powerful and intimate and vulnerable to say, okay, see you next week. It's hard. 
Yeah. Sometimes it's really hard. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I have anything intelligent to say about that. It's just um, you get used to it. You get used to actually very much like a scene. Um, if you're an actor, you commit fully 100%. And then when you walk off stage, you enter into the other realm of your life. Um, mm. So perhaps being an actor has really helped me prepare for that sort of compartmentalization. Oh, okay. All right. So you, you, you've learned how to do it and, and to do it well, I, I hope at this point, because it's not easy uh, to say to someone enough is enough. And related to that, and I'm sure every therapist goes through this, I've had people come in who are, it's truly pulling teeth to get them to open up. But there's as many people who come in and on the first question I ask can go for 45 minutes straight. Bobby, are you an interrupter or you just let it run its course? It depends on what it feels like that person's need might be. Mm. Um, and that's something you just have to feel out. Um, you know, if someone is talking on end for 45 minutes because a deeper need is to avoid connection with me okay. or to avoid uh, perhaps stillness um, or an emotional experience that they'd rather ride above, then I might interrupt. Okay. Um, but like we said earlier, if their need seems to be um, an unleashing of something that has been suppressed or repressed, mm -hmm. um, something that must be spoken, then of course, all the space in the world should be made for that. Okay. How important is it, Bobby Stegas, our guest, how important is it to uh, have shared values uh, when you're dealing with a client? I'll give you an example of what I mean. I've had uh, women come to me who will say, you know, I went to see such and such a, a therapist and and the, the particular thing they were bringing among many other issues was that they had years ago had the experience of an abortion. They were convinced that what they did was wrong and they regretted it. They'd had the experience then of going to a therapist and said, well, you're kind of overreacting to this thing. It's not a big deal. And in one case, I'm thinking of a woman who said, but it is a big deal for me. And I don't want my mm -hmm. therapist to tell me because he has a different value system than I that it's not. So do you have to have the same values or not? No, you don't. Okay. Okay. Um, I imagine it would be, for example, for me, very difficult to be working with someone who is openly homophobic. Ah. Um, but then I would want to explore with them what factors, you know, sustain that homophobia, what fear or experience in their past or, you know, um, unexplored aspects of their own identity um, cause that homophobia to be so powerful. And so I, I would hope that a different value system would be um, you know, an invitation to explore and mm -hmm. not necessarily something to shut either of us down. Okay. For those who don't know, Bobby Stegert uh, wasn't just a, a marginal actor, but a, a very popular performer who had uh, developed a great reputation and was honored in his community. I mentioned that because when you make this uh, decision to redirect your life a bit from family and friends, uh, highly supportive, or were there some who said, Bobby, you know, be patient, it's all coming back in time. Uh, don't don't throw this wonderful, amazing career that you developed. Uh, stay with it. Were there people who advised you against this? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's a larger discussion about how we um, define success in the society, mm. and 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 so often, especially in American society, we define it by something that is visible, that is lucrative, that's notable, that's special. Um, and I had to weigh all those aspects of my career up against a, a deeper reality, which is that I was, I was not happy. I was, um, you know, sort of mired in this very inconsistent and mm -hmm. um, 
basically unhealthy way of living. And I eventually got to the point where I knew I couldn't um, triage it. I had to kind of do some major surgery on, on the way that my life was structured. Um, And so the people that advised me against it just didn't understand the whole picture for me. Yeah. Back in the day, because you've talked about this elsewhere, where uh, while you were working active, there were times when you weren't working. What did you do to fill the, the void, Bobby? I think that's the mistake I made is that I never found meaningful, valuable, sustainable purpose outside of my work as an actor. Mm. Um, the reality is, of course, when you're not working, you're having to put a lot of energy into seeking work and to finding your next job. Yeah. And so there were some logistical things there too. Um, but I, I honestly was maybe a little bit lazy, a little less creative than I could have been. <laughs> um, and maybe a little too ego-driven to think that, um, that I was only an actor and that was enough because it wasn't enough for my soul. And in mm. moments in which I wasn't performing, I just didn't feel like I had anything to contribute. And that was really soul-sucking. In the beginning of this uh, uh, pandemic, uh, certainly in New York State, uh, a church like ours was ultimately closed for months and months. And it was a, it was a very strange thing after almost 40 years of uh, regularly relating to a community every Sunday and even during the week uh, and communicating with that to not have that anymore. For us, the solution became, and it's not a real solution, it's, it's a way we handled it was to go online. And so in a parish like ours, which has 3,000 families, we suddenly had eight and 10 and 15,000 people watching every week, which was kind of a nice thing to have a broad uh, across America, across the, the world audience, but not the same experience. Now, that's for a priest. I can't imagine what a guy who's not specifically into TV or, or movies, and even they were shut down, would do if he's a theater actor who draws his life from the audience. Uh, what was the general response of actors who realized this thing is shut down for a while and this is what I do? This is who I am. What do I do? Major identity crisis, you know, as, as you just described so well. I mean, um, it was fascinating and, and painful to be in the position that I'm in to support many actors during the pandemic who not only lost employment, you know, their basic needs were at risk, but really lost the sense of who they were. Um, and, you know, had a lot of questions about um, what it was they could do to feel connected, what it was mm-hmm. they could do to feel uh, like they were contributing. Um, it's getting better, clearly, but it's still an issue for many performers. Yeah. Um, yeah, the world changed and it was a really terrifying change for, for people, especially live performers. There's an actor, Brian J. Smith, uh, mostly Broadway, I think, although I think he does TV and movies sometimes, but he talked about uh, on our program being raised Baptist and sitting there in a Texas church and hearing how, and he knew secretly he was a gay man, how, how awful being gay was. And it, it, instead of separating out the reality of the fact that this preacher is giving one version of Christianity, uh, he saw all Christianity that way, and he ran from everything church-wise. Um, how important is it and how easy is it to have people recognize, as you just said a moment ago, take the good stuff and, and throw the bad stuff away? Um, is that a lesson easily learned for people who are struggling to be both wanting to be faithful, but at the same time not wanting to be hurt? Absolutely, it's a struggle. Yeah. Um, you know, it all comes down to discussions about where one's faith truly lies yeah. and uh, what, what one's vision of God really is. Mm. Um, and if the belief is that God is an all loving, 
um, all accepting force, um, mm. then the fault lies in the people proselytizing this religion, not necessarily the belief itself. Yeah. I think we've struggled in the Catholic Church. You have uh, the previous pope who actually in one of his statements in the 80s came out with the homosexual person is intrinsically disordered. And I think a lot, a lot of us would say, wait a second, intrinsically disordered means from the get-go, God made a mistake. Are you saying God makes mistakes? And of course, the Holy Father would say, no. Well, then how can you use that language in talking about people, that no one comes into this world made by God as a mistake? Um, can you help people? Are you helping people to come to see that uh, the way God made them precisely is exactly what they're supposed to be? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so clear to me outside of the faith tradition that, um, you know, that identity is not chosen. It is inherent. It is given. And, um, you know, we as a culture um, are constantly changing, constantly shifting. Um, and, you know, the hope is that as we shift, we will shift towards more and more understanding of difference and of diversity. Mm. Um, and that for people who are mired in old fashioned and um, inhumane ways of categorizing people, um, it, it just so happens that those people are, are being left behind by the progress that I think is making this world a better place. Yeah. And always to keep uppermost the notion that God is love. I want to thank Bobby Segert for being with us and personally speaking. Uh, a fascinating guy at many levels. I, I, if you hadn't had a chance to see him on stage or in his acting career, that's too bad because he's really, really good. But he's also <laughs> now find a new place to be good and to accomplish good and wonderful and life-giving things uh, through being a therapist and helping people on their life journey. Uh, Bobby, much success to you in this next stage of your life. And, and again, thank you again for being on Personally Speaking. I really appreciate it. Thank you for talking again. This program is made possible in part and sponsored by Bullion Shark, a leading rare coin dealer. Do you remember the Bible story of the widow's mite? The widow's mite coin is the type of coin that circulated in the Holy Land and is mentioned twice in the Bible. It's now possible to have one of your very own. Bullion Shark, a well-known rare coin dealer, has a limited supply of these biblical coins and each coin has been professionally certified. You can buy one or more of these rare coins for just $99 each. While supplies last, their number is 1-888-355-1587. And their website is www.bullionsharks.com. This 2,000-year-old unique coin is a piece of biblical history that also makes a perfect gift. Each coin comes with NGC certification to guarantee authenticity and a story card detailing the story behind the piece. You can own a piece of the biblical story that can be passed along to family members for generations to come. Once again, Bullion Shark's number is 1-888-355-1587 and their website is www.bullionsharks.com. What a great opportunity to own or to give as a gift, the very coin mentioned in the Bible. I want to thank you all for being with us on our program today. If you'd like to reach me or have questions or comments, please write to personallyspeakingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also get past episodes by going to YouTube, searching under Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Santi, and please don't forget to click like and subscribe. 
Personally Speaking is also available as a podcast on personallyspeakingpodcast.buzzsprout.com. We're also on Facebook at Personally Speaking with Monsignor Joe Santi, and we're also now on Instagram at Personally Speaking Podcast. I'm privileged to serve as host and executive producer, Personally Speaking. Our producer is Lisa Jandovitz. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be with you again next time on Personally Speaking.